Our scripture reading this morning is uh, Psalm 32. Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many of the sorrows of the wicked, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, we have an expression that we have to say today, and I guess probably for the next few weeks, maybe even, and I think we had to start last week. The expression is, Happy New Year. It's hard for me to remember to say Happy New Year instead of just hello, (laughs) but I'm supposed to do that and I try to remember. Usually I remember when someone says it to me, (laughs) and I was, oh yeah, Happy New Year. That's a wish. That's a wish. So if I say Happy New Year to me, to you, uh... That means I want this coming year, in your experience, to be happy. Is it going to be happy? Is there any reason to think that this year will be better than last year? Well, maybe there are some, especially after a year like this past year. Well, we said that last year because the year before that was even worse. We said Happy New Year. And of course, this, that means this year, the, you know, we'll probably have a happier year than we had last year, but every year is full of trouble. So, you know, will this year be happy? Well, <clears throat> sometimes, I guess, some people will experience periods of great 
happiness, joy, even. We'll have some good times. Probably have some hard times. And so I wanted to talk this morning about how to have a happy new year. I had a conversation with my mother last week and she wants, she doesn't need to have a happy year. She wants to have a joyful year. She means something by that distinction. Because it seems like we're happy when the things right in front of our eyes are good and pleasant and we're happy. But what is available to a person who knows Christ is something much deeper than that. The, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians talks about this. You know, the book of Philippians is the happiest book in the New Testament, or maybe if I, I want to satisfy this distinction that many of us prefer, I should say the book of Philippians is the most joyful book in the Bible, except maybe for some of the Psalms, I don't know, but certainly in Paul's writings, it is full of rejoicing, which is funny because it's one of those letters that Paul wrote when he was in prison. It just doesn't seem like a very happy situation. In fact, it really isn't a happy situation. He was in prison waiting to find out if they were going to kill him or not. It was kind of up in the air. And yet, in, from prison, from this situation of uh, ultimate uncertainty, he writes the book that is the most characterized by joy. And he begins the last chapter of that book uh, with, uh, with a commandment, well, kind of a series of commandments. So today I want to look at that. We're going to look at the first few verses of Philippians chapter 4, where we're going to find a fact. We're going to find five commandments and a promise. Or maybe if we count it differently, two promises and six commandments, but yeah, okay. We're going to find a fact, we're going to find some commandments, and we're going to find a promise in Philippians chapter 4. So I'm going to read it. You see if you can identify the commandments while I'm reading. You're going to have to think fast. The commandments, the fact, the commandments, and the promise. Here we go. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, the fact, did you spot it? It's pretty, it goes by pretty fast. The fact. Sorry, I got to put a clip on my Bible here so I don't lose my place. The fact is this, and in fact, sorry, in fact, this is the most important fact of all facts. There is not a single thing that is true that is more significant than this fact. It's the Christmas fact, actually, as we discovered last Sunday. It's the Christmas fact. The Lord is at hand. You know, if Jesus wasn't born that day and grew up to be the man he was and grew up to make the sacrifice he made and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for you, we could not say the Lord is at hand. In fact, that expression, the Lord is at hand, is a way of saying all of those things. The Lord is with us, the Emmanuel. God is Emmanuel, God with us. And of course, in this expression, the Lord is at hand, it's also a reminder that the Lord is about to be with us in person again. That he is returning at any moment. He's at hand. He's at hand in both of these ways. If you looked at Paul's great message at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, you'd see that God is near you. And uh, I want to I turn to John chapter 14. John 14, verse 16. Jesus said this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, in this instance, he's not referring to the second coming, but to something else. He says, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Uh, sorry, I'm, I lost my place. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, this is verse 15, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How is he coming to us in this text? He's coming to us. Jesus, the Son, the eternal Son of God, is coming to us in the person of the Spirit, in the third person of the Trinity. And so Jesus is 
at hand, the Lord is at hand because of the indwelling Holy Spirit in the life of the individual Christian and in the life of the church, the body of Christ. The Lord is at hand. There is not a more significant fact than that. The, th the thing that matters the most is the availability of God Almighty to you and I. As in our sin, he is not available to us. We are alienated from God. Uh, after the fall of Adam and Eve, we, well, we all fell. We're alienated from God. We don't have access to God. He is not at hand. But in Christ, he is. And this is the most significant thing. That is, the Lord is at hand. So that's the fact. And then we have this series of commandments. Now, here's the thing. They're commandments in a certain way. But you know, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And John, the apostle, in 1 John said, his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, the commandments of Christ to those who are in Christ, don't feel like commandments. They feel like good ideas. This is what the reformers meant when they referred to the third use of the law. Before we know Christ, the law is an impossible burden. And in fact, it's intended only to lead us to need a savior because we cannot make ourselves righteous by the obedience of the law. And so the law is, the very purpose of it, according to the apostles, is to burden us to such a great degree that we cry out for mercy, and only Christ provides that. And so his commandments are not burdensome to a believer. They certainly are burdensome, to anyone who is not in Christ. But having come to Christ now, these things don't apply to me as a do this or else. They apply to me as a here's how to live out what you have in Christ. And so they are transformed from burden to opportunity. And so when I hear the commandments of Christ, I have a different kind of heart response when I'm in Christ and the Spirit dwells in me, my heart response now is a heart response of, that's a good idea, even if it requires me to go to some trouble, because it's a way for me to express the grace of God that I've received, the love of Christ that I can share. Because I have been loved, I become loving, and so when someone commands me to love, I'm like, yeah, that's what I wanted to do anyway. Well, this is an example. Here's the first of these commandments in the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> rejoice in the Lord. And then Paul says, again, I say, rejoice. It's like he says, rejoice in the Lord, and then he has to say, and I mean that. Always, he says, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Well, do you regard rejoicing as a burden? As a, well, I'd really rather not rejoice, but since you told me I have to, I guess I will. Well, this is a commandment of the non-burdensome sort. Now, it is interesting that he says always, and that rejoicing is, in fact, a commandment. Apparently, I'm not always inclined to rejoicing. Apparently, sometimes, I am not rejoicing, and someone needs to remind me to go ahead and rejoice. Well, here's what I think. All the other commandments and all other commandments, all other commandments of Scripture to Christians are just examples of this commandment. They are the details. So when the Scripture commands us to be truthful, being truthful is only a subset, a, an example of rejoicing in the Lord. I hope as we go along you'll see how that works. But this is, uh, this is the, the main commandment. Now some of you, when I say that, you're thinking of what Jesus said about what the main commandment was, Right? Because someone came up to Jesus one day and they said, what's the main commandment? (laughs) That was the question. What is the foremost, first and foremost commandment, the most important commandment? You remember what Jesus said, right? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. I probably got those backwards. And with all your strength with all that there is to you. Love the Lord your God wholly, completely, so that no aspect of you is not wholeheartedly loving God. That's the first commandment. And what I'd like to assert to you this morning is rejoice in the Lord is nothing other than that. Because to love God requires to be loved by God. It is to enjoy fellowship with God. The fellowship that is made possible for us by the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ and the intercession of Christ and the hope of the second coming of Christ, all of these things are the enjoyment of fellowship with God, our loving God. And what Jesus is saying is be totally wrapped up in God. If you want to be obsessed with something, be obsessed with the goodness of God toward you in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Same thing. Same thing. And really, we could go on. Jesus gave us two commandments. They asked him, what's the main commandment? He said, well, the main commandment is this, and the second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And I think, why do I, I don't, if I know the first, the most important thing, I don't really don't need to know the second most important thing. It's not like I'm going to quit loving, I'm, it's not like I'm going to quit doing the most important thing in order to take some time to do the second most important thing. Why do I even need to know the second commandment? Well, because the second commandment is the, the outworking of the first one. It's just a, another, the main way, maybe, even, that we fulfill the first commandment. How do you, if I ask you, how do you love God? The answer is, love your neighbor as yourself. And all the other commandments flow from the enjoyment of our fellowship with God. And in fact, the enjoyment of our fellowship with God is what makes his commandments not burdensome. And of course, all of this begins with him loving us. I don't initiate this relationship. I, if I'm not in Christ, I don't, I'm not even interested in this relationship. I live in a state of rebellion against God. I might give some religious lip service to God so that I can make myself look good and feel good about myself and feel kind of righteous. I might be a religious person, but I don't know God. I'm not enjoying fellowship with God, and God is certainly not pleased with my unrighteous righteousness, my self-righteousness. It is only those that God sets his love upon that respond to him in love, and it is those who know Christ that can come to God in Christ. Boldly, according to the book of Hebrews, I can march right into the throne room of God as though it's my throne room. And I can stomp my feet and make demands as a child of God, and he graciously listens and gives me what's good for me anyway because he's my good father in Christ. And so the first commandment is a commandment to love the Lord your God, and Paul is phrasing that in a slightly different way, rejoice in the Lord always. Always enjoy your fellowship with God. Now, is that a burden? I don't think so. You can have fellowship with God in Christ by simple faith. So enjoy your fellowship with God. Here's the thing. Whatever God has, calls you to do, he's already provided for because the Lord is at hand. You know, another way of understanding that expression, the Lord is at hand, is he's ready to help. And what he commands, he also provides. <laughs> this is mostly by the power and the direction given by the Holy Spirit in indwelling us and by the word, but also in any other way that's necessary. So rejoice in the Lord always. And now I think I can come into some situations where rejoicing might be hard to pull off. So how about this always thing? Well, this verse is reminding us, what exactly is your situation? You're in a hard situation. You're in a time of difficulty. 
you maybe just lost your job or maybe you just got a bad diagnosis or someone you care about got a bad diagnosis or maybe even you lost someone you care about. It's hard. Life is hard. And all that Paul is doing here is reminding you that even in those situations, there's a bigger situation that you're in. And that is in the Lord. And so you have the Lord who is at hand, God with us, Emmanuel. God is in it with you. Rejoice in him. You can rejoice in this way while weeping. You can weep bitterly for the hardships of your life and at the same time trust in the one who will resolve all of those hardships for your benefit in the end. Trust in the one who already in simply granting you fellowship with himself has made you alive. And you are already, when you cry out to him, experiencing the most important thing, the Lord is at hand. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's the first commandment. Probably should move along. <laughs> the second commandment is be well known for gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Now, this, this commandment has an assumption in it, and that is that you possess gentleness. <laughs> because the commandment is to just to let it show. And that presumes that it's there to be shown. But, okay, be famous for gentleness is what is this commandment. So that when people think of you, they go, oh, yeah, gentle guy, gentle person, gentle mom, gentle father, gentle husband, gentle wife, gentle child, gentle student, gentle teacher, gentle accountant, gentle plumber, whatever. The thing you're known for is your gentleness, if you're following this commandment. Well, that would be an awesome thing to be known for. This is not a burdensome commandment. If, if we have half a brain, we want this. The, what sort of reputation might be better than this reputation? That person is easy to know. That person, to be with that person is refreshing and restful. Wow, I wish that were true. <laughs> Now, here's what gentleness means, like the word itself in this text. It means to give up the need to have your own way. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm not very obedient to this command. i got to have my own way most of the time. But it's let it go. What a funny thing to command. Just let it go. 
Well, this doesn't mean that you forget about what's right and wrong or that you forget about the damaging nature of sin or you never confront somebody when they're wrong. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that you communicate love and grace and acceptance to the people around you even if they don't provide properly for you. Perhaps especially then. Even if they don't do the things you approve of. So this, this can be hard to pull off, right? Like you're, you communicate acceptance in the face of bad behavior. That doesn't mean you approve the bad behavior, but it does mean you, you accept the person and you exhibit the love of Christ to the person. By the way, you can't do that. You probably know this already because you might have tried. You can't do that except as an expression of rejoice in the Lord always. The only way, Christian, for you to really consistently let your gentleness be known to all men is if you begin with rejoicing in the Lord always. If, if your love for someone else is not an expression of your love for God, which, by the way, is an expression of his love for you, you won't be able to pull it off. This, you can't fake this. And so you can only do the second commandment as an expression of the first commandment, rejoicing in the Lord, let your gentleness be known. The Lord is at hand. Oh, if that's not true, none of this is possible. If it isn't the Lord in you expressing gentleness to the people around you, then you're not really obeying this commandment. Be well known for gentleness. The next commandment is this. Don't be anxious about uh, the big things. No, anything. Don't be anxious about anything. I read this kind of stuff in the Bible and I say, what? Even when I read, you know, Jesus saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, my first impression is, I don't think that's right. I, I feel his yoke is a burden. Well, that just tells you I'm not really getting it yet. And here it says, don't be anxious about anything. Now, this also is not a burdensome commandment. I don't want to be anxious, but I am. I do worry about all kinds of things, and this tells me I'm not to worry about anything. What? In fact, I'm not, one of the things I'm not supposed to worry about is whether I'm anxious about anything. Because, you know, as Christians, we could take these things and wrap them around our minds until we're, the thing I'm worried about is how much I'm worried about everything. And this says, be anxious for, don't be anxious about anything. How? Well, only by rejoicing in the Lord. 
only by the Lord is at hand, only by let your gentle... These things unfold from each other. If I rejoice in the Lord, then I'm not anxious. This is really impossible apart from the big fact and apart from the expression of rejoice in the Lord. But Paul gives us a little more help. So I'm including in this commandment the thing he says you're to do instead of being anxious. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but instead... Okay, so I want to, I'm, I'm tempted to be anxious. I'm not going to do that. But instead of that, I'm going to do this. What is, what is this? Well, he says, pray about everything. How does he say that? Do not be anxious about everything, about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer changes things, we say. But you know, we usually don't think of this exactly correctly, because we want to say prayer changes things because I prayed for a new car and God gave me a new car. Or I prayed for healing for somebody and God healed them. And so I say prayer changes things. Here's what I say, prayer changes things when God doesn't give you the thing you prayed for too. So I prayed for a new car and the Lord provided me with a new pair of shoes. And I'm disappointed that he didn't give me a car. I prayed for the, someone to be healed and they weren't. That's a lot harder than the shoe thing. So what is it that prayer changes? You see, prayer is not really about changing your immediate situation. Prayer is about changing your point of view on that situation. Prayer is about changing you, not just giving you the thing you're asking for. Jesus said, you know, you guys, you're, you're sinners and you know how to take, give good gifts to your children. Don't you think your heavenly Father knows even better how to provide for you? So when you pray for a car and you get shoes, for some reason, shoes are better. And it's about changing your point of view. It's about redirecting your attention to God, who is with you, who is at hand, who is ready to be spoken with, ready to converse with you, ready to provide for you in what's really good, not necessarily what you are seeking. He promises to provide for you right here in Philippians chapter 4. My God shall supply all your needs. My God shall supply, not might, if you, you know, phrase your prayer just exactly right, or pray harder, I don't even know what that means, or pray more, or pray this or that way, or if you use this model of praying instead of that model, it's none of that. There's no if on the my God shall supply. 
Well, there is an according to. My God shall supply all your needs according to the effectiveness of your prayers. Is that what it says? According to the rightness of your doctrine. According to the regularity of your church attendance. According to the mode of your baptism. According to... No. There's nothing about you in the according to. According to his riches in glory. That is a pretty deep source. So, are we praying so that God will provide for us? Well, in a manner. But God's providing for us anyway. What is the importance of praying? I have this in my notes here. Prayer is, as they say, the whole enchilada. I put that in my notes because I kind of thought I was clever when I came up with that. And I think no, most of the people I'm talking to probably don't know what I mean when I say it's the whole enchilada. But okay, what does that mean? Prayer is the thing itself. If you are praying, you are engaging in fellowship with the Father in Christ by the Spirit. You are rejoicing in the Lord. The Lord is at hand. If you are praying, you are looking to God as your provider. You are trusting in God and not your own self. That is the thing that Jesus died to provide for you. Access to God. This is the fact coming up again. The fact the most important fact of all facts, the Lord is at hand. God himself, God Almighty, creator of all things, ruler of all things, uh, uh, promiser of all things, he is accessible to you. What will he give you that is better than that? He will give you whatever you need, but nothing else he gives you is more important than the fact that you can pray. When you pray, you're engaging in fellowship with the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. This is better than anything else you might be praying for. And what we're doing when we're praying, when I say prayer changes things, what I mean is it changes the one praying. In fact, when I pray, I've already changed from somebody who relies on anything other than God to someone who relies on God. That's what Jesus died for. There's nothing else beyond that that is better than that. To know God is the thing itself. To walk in fellowship with God, rejoice in the Lord. It's the main thing. So really, when Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, instead, pray, it's like he's saying, instead, rejoice in the Lord. Instead, love the Lord. Instead, rely on the Lord. Trust the Lord. 
Hope in the Lord. Get yourself wrapped up in God, in Christ, by the Spirit. And so when I pray and I recognize that the very fact that I can pray is better than anything I'm asking for, sometimes I might be even forgetting what it was I came here to ask for. And the throne room of God is open to you in Christ. When you go in there, a place where you really don't belong, being an unrighteous person, when you go in there, Jesus says, it's okay, he's with me. And the Father embraces you in Christ. So that's the third commandment, don't worry about anything. And he gives us a method for not worrying. Pray. Let your requests be made known to God with thanks. Wow. However great your difficulties, the provision of God in and through those difficulties is greater. That can be hard to trust in. I know. But it's true. However, this Corey Ten Boom said this, there is no pit so deep that the love of God isn't deeper. And even when I'm in the middle of the worst, the Lord is leading me through the valley of the shadow of death, and the Lord is working in me something worth it. And I say that knowing about how horrible things can be. It's hard to accept this truth sometimes. And yet, this is true. Prayer changes things. And it's not because it, prayer always provides the sort of relief we're looking for. But prayer all, is always a turning to the one who really loves me as I need to be loved. The fourth commandment, Paul says, gives us a list of things to think about, and I don't have time to go word by word through this list. I wish I did. He says, <clears throat> finally, brothers, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, Excellent, praiseworthy, think about that. <laughs> Dwell on that. Think about these things, and I'll let you deal with the list. Things that are true, honorable, just, which means right, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. Now, there's, there's pro it's probably a short list of things that really fit those bills, you know, but... Here's the word, what the word think about means. So I'll, this is the help I'll give you on this commandment. The word think about is the word logizomai, and it's the word for reckon. It's the same word you find in Romans 6, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. And it's a, it's a word, it's an accounting word. So we could say it's the word count or take note and give attention to. In other words, these things are 
true, and the thing to do is notice them and take full account of them. So what's true? Notice when something's true. And true just means actually according to reality. <laughs> and you know, when I think about, it, about this list and I ask the question, what, what can be described by this list? The main thing that can be described by this list is the Lord Jesus, who's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. So I need to do the bookkeeping, the mental bookkeeping to notice that. And to notice, for example, that the Lord is building his church. And that is something he's doing, not something we do. We get, we get in on it, but trust me, we're in the way. He, we, he lets us in on it because, well, we're it. So we get to help. But he's the one building his church, and if I notice the truth of that, that's good. If I, I need to know that, you know, the church, most of you are not here right now, but the church is full of troublesome people. You know this because you've had to deal with me, probably. And I can be troublesome. I can be grumpy. I can be feisty and argumentative. I have a trouble expressing gentleness sometimes. I need to be recognized as right. Okay, well, if you remember the truth and account for the truth that you and me are brothers in Christ and you are stuck with me as your pastor, at least for the time being, and I'm stuck with you and we're stuck with each other and we're, we're brothers, so yeah, we, we get on each other's nerves a little bit, but Christ is building his church, and his church will be the people who rejoice in the Lord always, who love God and express God's love in the world. We are being built into those people, and so I maintain hope, even for you. You might think you're kind of a lost cause, but Jesus doesn't. So I remember the truth. I dwell on the truth. I reckon the truth. I take note of the truth. I give attention to the truth. And uh, yeah, so on and so forth. All these things, true, honorable, just, right, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. What God is doing is good news. Rejoice. Remember, reckon good things. Finally, the last thing Paul says, practice the things you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me. Well, again, we could preach for five or six weeks on that text by just reviewing the book of Philippians. What are the things the Philippians have Learned, received, heard, and seen in Paul. I'm going to give you a quick list. In chapter 1, it's about partnership in the gospel. He regards them as his partners in the great cause of the good news. The great announcement. 
He regards them uh, as partners. Uh, the second, in, in the second part of chapter one, uh, the thing you might learn from Paul is he he sees himself as an exaltation of Christ in his body, whether he lives or dies, in life or by death. He says. I can't decide, I can't make up my mind whether I'd rather die and be with the Lord or whether I'd rather remain alive in order to continue to participate in the great announcement. And he's not having trouble picking the lesser of two evils. He's having trouble figuring out which of these would actually be better. To die is one of the things you know, you could die and you'd be fine in Christ. You'd be promoted, actually. You'd be experiencing Christ in a slightly more uh, direct way than you do today. Okay, so exaltation in the body, exaltation of Christ in the body, that's something you do, that Paul did. Paul talks in, in chapter 2 about unity through humility, and he gives Christ as the example. He says you should be concerned about the needs of others as much as you are about yourself. So, there's something you can practice. You can abandon self-righteousness for the alien righteousness of Christ. That's chapter 3, the first part of chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. Paul says, you know, I used to be righteous. <laughs> That's what he says. You know, I used to be righteous. Now, I think, that's garbage. Now, that doesn't sound like something an apostle should say, does it? But that's what he says. You know, I used to be righteous, more righteous than any of you people. In fact, people told me I was blameless. Israelite, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was the feisty tribe, you know. And a Pharisee of Pharisees, I was righteous, let me tell you. But now, I regard that as garbage. Really? Why? Isn't righteousness good? Well, not if it's from you, Paul. So what does he say? I regard that as garbage for the sake of knowing Christ and possessing His righteousness, which I possess not because I've built up my own righteousness until it looks like His. No, because He simply imputes it. He gives me credit for it, even though I'm not. He gives me the alien righteousness of Christ. And so Paul says, look, if you want to practice something, practice abandoning your own righteousness and walking in the righteousness of Christ, knowing Christ. Again, the whole point is Jesus died to reestablish fellowship between us and God, to reconcile us to God, to walk in his righteousness, not ours. And then, you know, the second part of chapter 3, it's all about how he's totally occupied with knowing Christ. The thing, the thing is knowing Christ, fellowship with Christ.
So it makes perfect sense then when he gets to chapter 4 that he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Be famous for your gentleness. By the way, this is only the details of living by the fact and the first commandment. The Lord's at hand. Rejoice in the Lord. And then you practice the things you've learned from the apostles. Now, the conclusion of all this is a promise, and we kind of skipped over it in the middle. You might not have noticed. We kind of skipped over it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the first statement of the promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. And then he goes on at the end, he says, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the promise is the peace of God and the God of peace. It's two ways of saying the same thing. How do I have the peace of God? I have the peace of God by knowing God, the God of peace. And so we are encouraged here that the result, the consequence of these things, of rejoice in the Lord, of uh, the Lord is at hand, of be well known for gentleness, of be anxious about nothing, but pray about everything. Think about the things the, the things that are true, honorable, so on and so forth. Practice the things you've learned. The, the consequence of all of these is walking with the Lord. And these are just a way of saying, walk with God. And God, the God of peace will be with you. He's with you. The question is, will you recognize that reality? So when, when Paul says at the end, the peace of God will be with you, he's, it's really just a repet, repetition of the Lord is at hand. The peace of God will guard your heart. Wow. And so we are invited to rest, to rest in peace. Oh, wait, now that sounds like we're dead. Okay, to rest in the peace of God, to rest in Christ. It's okay. Everything's okay in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Peace of God will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. What a fantastic promise. And it's simply the natural consequence of adopting this perspective on the life we are in and to seeing past that thing, that, that immediate thing that might, you know, spike my happiness or ruin it. Uh, to see the situation I am in, in Christ and by the Spirit. What a great promise. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. 
Lord, help us to walk in these in this truth. To walk in prayer. To rejoice in the Lord. And to bring the joy of the Lord to the people around us. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.